0: Hello, my name's Rosie and I'm Lorraine and this is What If, the show that examines life's what if moments. I guess
1: it's all about those times when you find yourself at a crossroads and you have to decide what path you're going to take.
0: Yeah, and for every path you choose, there's one or two that you might have decided to leave behind. And how does this change and affect your life? Yeah, because we've all
1: had those moments, haven't we? Well, in this podcast, we'll be walking that unbeaten path with an incredible lineup of celebrity guests asking them that all-important question, what if...
0: This week, we're joined by one of your favourite authors.
1: Absolutely, Marianne Keyes. Mm. Love her books. She's just such a brilliant
0: storyteller. What do you like the most about her books? Just,
1: I love the characters. They're so vivid that I feel that I know them. And I'm always really sad when I get to the end of her book. I mean, I can't stop turning the pages. But then That's you're excited
0: because you know there's going to be another one.
1: Well, I should think so. Mm. Definitely.
0: Were you always a keen writer growing up? Did you always have a sort of wild imagination?
2: Hi, Rosie. No, I didn't. (laughs) I mean, I didn't start writing until I was 30, but I was always a great reader. Books were kind of my saviour when I was a kid. I think if you read an awful lot, it kind of gives you, you know, the blueprint for how storytelling works And also, like, my mother was an amazing story, an oral storyteller. And the house I came from, it was like you had to be good at telling stories and you had to be good at being funny. Like, that was how you kind of survived. So in some ways, I was interested in kind of the art of storytelling. And I always loved people who were funny and people who were articulate. Like, I love people who are very nimble with words and, you know, who have all kinds of old fashioned words, you know, ones that you wouldn't kind of hear that often. So I wasn't a writer until I was 30, but I think I was a storyteller before then.
1: Yeah, and telling stories is very much, I think it's very similar backgrounds to what we had, you know, when you had big family gatherings, you would sit and listen to stories like my grandfather would tell
2: stories, my uncle would tell stories, or they would sing. It was a real thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when I would be with my grandparents, like, you would do what they called a recitation, where, like, you'd say a poem, or like you said, you'd sing, or if, like, if you had a tin whistle, like, you'd play an instrument, or you would tell, you know, a long, complicated joke. Like, you know, you had to have your party piece. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was very much a rural thing, because, you know, my grandparents, they didn't have an electricity, you know. So, like, their entertainment came from other people. And... I mean, I think maybe for a lot of Irish people, we're only two generations away from that. You had to kind of sing for your supper, like maybe almost literally. And it's a good thing to have. It really is. Rosie, you'll be appalled, but you
1: had to learn a party piece, like Marine said, and you had to do a turn, it was called. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) You had to, could you imagine that now? <laughs> when? Like well, special occasions? Or? Oh, it would be
1: like maybe special occasions like birthdays or New Year for okay. sure you would have to do your turn. I mean, I remember my <laughs> mum getting herself in a right old tizzy because she had to learn a song and she was all really worried about it, you know, like what would the reception be from the rest of the family? But it is stories. That's the, that's the thing and that's at the heart of what you do, Marion. You're a brilliant storyteller and it's that skill of wanting us to
2: turn that page, to find out we have got to find out what happens next. Thank you. You're so (laughs) lovely. Yeah, I'm a storyteller and it kind of took me a long time to understand that that is actually what I do. You know, like I create characters and I I set them up in situations and it's people that interest me. Um, And again, I think that was something that was always there from very young for me. I mean, lots of writers say this. I always felt like an outsider. And I think when you have that kind of position It's not always a happy place to be, but it gives you a very different perspective on people. Like, I mean, I was watching people rather than being part of life for a lot of that. And it just, it made me analytical. It made me understand. And I could see dynamics playing out for people in front of me. And they didn't know that things were happening because they were just living their lives. But it is one of the things that, you know, an awful lot of writers say.
0: And you were saying you became a writer when you were 30. I'm just wondering if you hadn't done that.
2: What if you went somewhere else? Oh, my God, Rosie. (laughs) I mean, like, you have no idea. Like, my life was so terrible then. Um, Like, I was four months away from going into rehab for alcoholism. And my life had become so small and so hopeless. And I just... I sort of given up on everything, like I had left university at 20 and I had a law degree and, you know, there was meant to be this bright, open future ahead of me where anything was possible, but it turned out that nothing was possible because I was me. So the starting to write when I was 30 was definitely the last throw of the dice. And I look back and I mean, I feel cold at the thought of if I had missed that, and I I wrote short stories between the first one I wrote when I was 30 and then when I went into rehab. And when I came out of rehab, I decided I wanted to do something with them. And that was very unusual for me. But I feel like everything that happened around then was so, oh, it was just one of those huge pivots in my life where... There were many times I could have just thought, ah, no, this isn't for me, or I'm not good enough, or, you know, who do I think I am? And, I mean, that was kind of my default way of thinking at the time. But no, I thought, I love it, and I deserve it as much as anyone else. But, you know, I could never have imagined that this would be my life. It's scary how easily I could have missed it. And was there a moment that
0: you thought, oh, I can make a career out of this? This is going to be the thing that I do.
2: There was a moment when my second book came out in Ireland and I was published in Ireland and not really anywhere else and because Ireland is small you know you don't really unless you sell bucket loads and you write an awful lot you know the chance of making a full-time living from it is unlikely but a British editor, a woman called Louise Moore, who is still my publisher today, she had to come to Ireland for something and my book was all over at the airport and she picked it up to read it on the plane because, I mean, she was in publishing and she was always interested and she w- loved the book. And And I was working in this small um, accounts office in the middle of London and, uh, and I had an agent and he sent her offer through to me on the office fax. And it Mm -hmm. was just, I can't tell you, like, it was just like she offered money. I I, I still have the facts because the offer for one book was like four times my annual salary. And that was a moment where it Mm. felt like this whole horizon had opened up and it did. And then I was able to give up my job and I was able to make a living as a writer and once again, like if Louise hadn't come to Dublin, you yeah, know, she around. she hadn't been I, on that flight. Yeah, Mad. exactly. Like she wouldn't have seen the book and like, and she wouldn't have known about me because nobody did outside of Ireland. I mean, I don't know whether everything that happens to anyone in a life is just completely random, but there are things that happen sometimes. And you think that happened kind of alarmingly smoothly, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of think. You would believe in things being fated, you you know, when I think about things like that.
1: Mm, You would, wouldn't you? It's Mm. it's quite remarkable when 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 you think about just those little slidey door moments, just those little moments that you think, wow, if that hadn't happened, this probably wouldn't have happened. But do you think with everything that you went through and, you know, going into rehab and things got pretty dark for you, Does it make you a better writer or is that a trite thing to say or do you think it actually makes you better at what you do?
2: God, Lorraine, it's such an interesting one because, you know, there's this myth about to be a writer or to be an artist that you have to be tortured in some way. Mm. Um, And I suppose... I mean, I certainly don't think that if I was drinking, still drinking, that I would be producing anything, you know, and I sort of disagree with the whole tortured artist from that point of view, but maybe it has given me more empathy, you know, to end up in rehab for alcoholism when you're 30 is quite an unusual and, you know, a potentially shaming thing to live through. And yeah, and I felt I had alienated everybody, like in many ways, like I was such a kind of a you know, a normal young woman, I was working in London, I had a job and, you know, I used to go out and, you know, bought shoes and, you know, was really keen to meet men. But by the end of my drinking, like all my really good friends had given up on me because I was a nightmare. And I was to end up in rehab feeling like everyone hates you. And I, like, I really felt like my life is over, you know, to arrive in this place. To kind of feel that bleakness you know, I'm good at writing about it, I suppose, because not everybody's going to end up in rehab for alcoholism. But we all have moments in our life when we think, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. Mm. You know, these are the horrible things that are meant to happen to other people. So, yeah, every book that I write, they go through tough stuff. And, yeah, I have that to bring.
0: I mean, you talk about divorce and mental health and. Domestic violence and drugs and, and alcohol, they're all relatable things. I think everyone goes through at some point, whether they go through it themselves or someone that they know. But I'm just guessing it's more relatable, isn't it?
1: And things are better. I mean, things are better like, for your age, Rosie. Mm-hmm. You know, people do talk about stuff now and there yeah. isn't that sort of sense of feeling embarrassed
2: or, yeah. or silly about it, which is what, which is important, right? Yeah, mm. I mean, do you remember there was a time when people were afraid to say they had cancer?
0: Oh, yeah. uh, Marion, I you know, I know. Like, I, know. It's I remember. yes
2: yeah.
1: Absolutely crazy. When I, when I first started out on, on TVAM all those years ago, back in the 80s, it was the C word. Yeah. And it was in hushed tones yeah. and nobody... So we've come a long way. We, we have, have. We have definitely come a long way. It has got a, a heck of a lot better, that's for sure. Um, you talk about your lovely husband and I love that you call him himself. Where did that <laughs> come from, himself? Because I love that.
2: It, it's an Irish word. I'm not sure it can be translated exactly. And women are called herself. And it, it's, it's a kind of a mark of respect. And again, I think it's a rural thing. You know, like you'd be down on the farm and, uh, and you know, the matriarch would be herself. And they'd say, is herself inside? You know, and and <laughs> it means the most important, like himself would be the head of the house. You know, he's the most important man. And like lots of Irish people would go through life never calling their spouses by their names. They'd be like, oh, herself is upside, you know, up in the house or, you know, oh, himself has gone down to the shops. It's mm. just an odd thing, just another one of those kind of linguistic things. But he's English, so he didn't know anything about himself. But But the name <laughs> kind of stuck. And especially, I think, you know, if you're writing on social media about your spouse, I always think, my husband sounds so kind of entitled <laughs> and, oh God, I don't know, surrendered wife and uncomfortable. Like I needed something kind of warm to refer to him with. And I saw some people were talking about my first husband, you know, when they were writing about their husband. And I was kind of charmed by that for a while. And then thought, well, actually, no. <laughs> I, I really don't want any other husbands, I just want him. And people said the man, which I kinda like too, but himself suits himself. And he knows that that's his name now. Um, so yeah, it's worked out nicely. <laughs> it certainly has. What if you hadn't met him? Oh my though? god. Oh my god. Like Rosie, you are young. Mm-hmm. And I was once young, and <laughs> I had the most appalling taste in men like and I didn't know who I was and I had very low self-esteem and I liked men who made me feel bad about myself but I also liked drama you know I thought if there was lots of drama and fights and door slamming and storming off and coming back and you know mad passionate makeups and everything that like it meant that it was real you know and I didn't understand that love like romantic love is actually a very different thing And like, I was kind of long in the tooth at this stage, you know, like, I mean, I was 30, coming up to 31, you know, when like I came out of rehab and I had known himself. He wasn't himself. Then he had a different name and (laughs) I liked him, but I was really suspicious of him because he was always really nice to me. And he would like ring me when he'd say he'd ring me, you know, he would turn up when he'd say he'd turn up. And I was baffled by this. I thought this was really peculiar. But after I came out of rehab, I had changed a bit in how I saw myself and how I behaved in relationships. And I thought I would try something different because they say that insanity is you know doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so I thought I'm going to go for an entirely different man this time. Just you know, variety is the spice of life. And I don't know if I thought anything was going to last, but we've been together, hang on let I think now, 26 years. And I mean, I touch wood on a regular basis because he is such a kind and good man and we have such a laugh. And it was only after I got sober that I understood that like friendship is the important thing for any long-term relationship, because it's got to be, you know, and passion will come and go, but treating each other with kindness and respect, is just fundamental. And we've been through huge amounts of stuff, like we wanted children and it didn't happen. And that was incredibly sad for both of us. And we had to be enough for each other. And... You know, we haven't stayed the same people through the last 26 years. You know, we've we've had to adapt and change with each other. But I just feel so lucky. Like, he is my best friend and he is such... He's in my corner. You know, I mean, I think the world can be very brutal. Like, it's very easy to step outside your front door and to have 20 people, you know, shout at you and tell you in all the ways you're terrible. And you need to have somebody kind to say, ah, you're all right, you know, or you're not so bad, or, you know, or to say, come over and I like, give you a hug. And I don't believe in soulmates because I think that's taking, it's taken away any personal responsibility in a relationship because you have to behave correctly and you have to respond correctly to the changes and the needs of your partner. But we're so lucky to have met each other. Like, he's as lucky as I am. I used to be so sneery when my mother used to say things like, oh, you young people, you don't stick it out. You just give up straight away. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, you know, we will get with the program, grandma. That's what it's like. And now I think stick with it. You know, if you found a decent person and they are still decent, but they're driving you mad at the moment, see what you can adapt with or can you wait it out? Because, I mean, Everything changes, good and bad, you know, and bad, bad changes and becomes different and can become good again. So, I mean, I met him at the right time. You know, if I hadn't got sober, we'd have never been together because he was just too dull. You know, there was no drama. (laughs) And he you know, and he still won't. Like, I mean, I'm from a very volatile family, you know, and we we believe in shouting. You know, we storm into a room and we shout, where is my such and such? Have you taken my Yogi bus? Do you know? But he doesn't shout. He's very calm. He comes from a very calm family, lovely family, lovely manners, very calm. And like, I've had to learn how to be calm. And it's sort of nice being calm. I mean, I'm obviously not very calm, you know, but... <laughs> but yeah, I have learned new ways. And that's been lovely.
1: That's so nice. Mm. <laughs> I love that relationship. You know, that, that obviously, it it just works really well. And one of the things too, I guess, is you said he's in your corner and that's really important. And especially when you're going through, because you have been very open about the fact that you've suffered from really bad depression. Yeah. We're not talking about just feeling a wee bit under the weather. This is proper. This is really, really tough stuff. And even when you don't think you need them. You, you really do. You really yeah,
2: do. Yeah, I mean, it was, hang on, I think now, what year are you? It was just over 11 years ago that it kicked off and it was indescribably awful in that I felt, I went on for a long time, I felt very afraid all the time and I felt like I didn't love anyone and nobody loved me. I just felt completely numb with regards to loving other people and he was my husband and I felt like I didn't love him anymore and I wanted to go away and live on my own and I kept telling him to leave and he wouldn't and it's only now that I'm well again that I see how hellish it was for him because the person I was had disappeared and I had always been such fun And he didn't know what was going on in my head. He just knew it was awful. And he didn't leave me. And I didn't leave him. And I'm always very uncomfortable about saying, and things are better than ever, because I don't like to give the message that it's the universe's consolation prize for going through something awful, that things will be better afterwards. I mean, I think things are different afterwards when you go through something awful and you survive. But we are, it feels to me, happier, happier. Than we ever were. And like, you know, we've gone through a year together in lockdown. And I haven't wanted to kill him once, you know, which is just (laughs) lovely. Very (laughs) very good. I mean, I can't speak for him (laughs) about me. Like, I mean, I do often say to him, God love you. I'm a handful, am I? And he just smiles and says, you're not. But I am. (laughs) But it just, it works. And I think if you've met someone that it works with, hang on even if things are currently not working. That would be my tuppence worth from having been through a long marriage. (laughs) And apart from being
0: with himself, which I love and I might steal, um, (laughs) did your mental health ever improve with the
2: success that you got and being a bestseller? No, it didn't, Rosie. And I will tell you why. Because it is lovely to do a job that you love and to have... You know, to be acknowledged publicly. But I learned very early on, I'm really glad I got sober before I had any success because I learned very early on that I can't tie my sense of self to externals, you know, like being a best selling author, because all of those things are impermanent. As an author, I think you kind of live from book to book and Just because you've had one success, it doesn't mean that the next one will be a success. It doesn't mean that people will like it. So I had to kind of try and separate my actual, real Marian self away from the part that is out in public. And I had to try and get enough, enough validation and enough emotional nourishment from my personal relationships and, you know, what I did in the day-to-day way rather than thinking, well, my book sold so many copies last week and let's hope it sells as many next week because I can't control any of those things. I mean, I'm grateful for it. I should have said that. I mean, I am so grateful for it, (laughs) you know, and I'm so glad that people get comfort from what I, I write, but I define myself in a different way. You know, like I'm still very close to my mother and my siblings, their kids. And I've had the same friends for a very long time. And they're the ones that I get my value in, as well as being very grateful to do a job that I love and always so delighted if a book, you know, strikes a chord. But I I suppose I learned it the hard way.
1: Your mum is an interesting one. All mothers are interesting, aren't they, Rosie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but your mum is very interesting and, and I love the way you refer to it on social media.
2: The old woman. Old woman. <laughs> old woman. <laughs> and, but she is a character, yeah? Oh my God, she is a force of nature. Like, she is hilarious and she's tiny and, you know, she's the proper Irish mammy with the... The hair, you know, the cauliflower hair and and the handbag and everything. But she is so mischievous. I mean, that's the word. It's funny because she's very, very devout. You know, she's very devout. She's like genuinely holy. Like it really, really matters to her. But she has such a bold streak. I mean, she's so naughty and hilarious. And she has been amazing through the pandemic. Like she lives on her own. She has no Wi-Fi, which I just think is like, you know... It's a cruel and unusual punishment. And she has remained upbeat and positive and still really living. She's remarkable.
1: She sounds brilliant. She sounds really, really good fun. And I love the relationship you've got with her. I mean, I, I'm a bit like, my mum is, she's an interesting one. Like my mum my mom will watch me on telly. And she said the other day, she said, now, I was watching you on the telly. And you know what? She says, you're awful lucky because your neck hasn't gone. <laughs> and I mean, thanks, I think. Um, she'll say, oh, I was watching, she calls it like your one. I was watching your one the other night um, and her neck's gone. I wouldn't say who oh. it was because that's unfair. But she says, and her neck's gone. And you sort of have these utterly surreal conversations oh. with
2: your mum. And I think you would be the same. Oh, yeah. My mother will never praise me. Oh, never. No, no. Ever like if you put a gun to her head, she couldn't. You know, like I ring up and I say things like, um, hi ma'am, and she goes, What well, any news? And I say, Yeah, my book has gone in at number one. And she'll go, Oh, so any news on me vaccine. And I say, ma'am, did you hear me? She goes, Hold on now, what well, hold on, some at the door, something's at the door have to go. You know, like it would kill her. Like, she's from the generation of women in Ireland who just it was such a mark of pride to have children with no self-esteem. You know, it meant that you really had done the proper job. And you utterly destroyed them. And, you know, <laughs> and it was such a good Catholic thing to have meek children. And again, it's very Irish. The last thing you want is to have somebody thinking they're great. It's her crusade. It's her mission to keep me humble. That's a nice mm-hmm. way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> and a lovely I, way of putting I, it. It's just how she is. I hear what you're saying. It's that
1: thing as well So if you give my mum a compliment and you say, "Oh, I really like what you're wearing, or oh, your hair looks really nice, or or whatever." Oh, this old thing I've had it for years. Or oh, you know, she's always it's that thing. It's it's a very I don't know whether it's a Scottish and Irish thing, but it's very, very the same that you mm. don't know how to take a compliment. Do you? I don't oh. know how
0: to do that. <laughs> oh really? I think we're we all about the same. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we're all a bit the same, though. Definitely, yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah, we wanted to talk to you about beauty
2: a little bit. Oh, lovely.
1: Because yeah. I love the fact that you love
0: all of
2: that. Yeah. Oh, adore it. I have to tell you, it comes back to actually my mother. She rang me and she said, I need you to get me a new foundation. And I said, go on, Kay, tell me? And she goes, Tis Fenty. And I said, what? Spell it. And she goes, F-E-N-T-Y. <laughs> so she wanted the Fenty Ooh. foundation. And my my niece, Emma who's 20, wears it. So I just thought it was fantastic that my mother wanted a Fenty foundation. So I got it for her. But then she didn't wear it because if I buy it for her, she can't. It's like, oh, no, no, no. She'd get too much pleasure out of me liking something she bought me. So she didn't. But yes, (laughs) she loves foundation and she loves makeup. Like it's one of my earliest memories of her. She was sitting like at this fabulous kidney-shaped dressing table with, you know, the tripod mirrors. Like they move. There's ones on either Mm. side. Yeah. And she was there and she was putting on a thing that, what was it called? Royal essence. It was something for her skin. Like So she's always loved that. So I inherited that from her. And you should be allowed mm-hmm. to yeah, like of all course. of these things. I mean, there's not,
1: this is the thing that really annoys me. There's not a male equivalent of the slightly, dis, well, not even slightly disparaging term, of chick lit. No, there isn't. You know, which is, well, there isn't, there really isn't. And I, and I honestly think that is insulting. It to is. someone, especially someone like you, who that is not what you write. It, you tell brilliant stories.
2: Thank you. Thanks. I mean, the thing is, personally, I have long stopped being angry about it or minded. But I mind on behalf of all women. Like for every time a female writer is disparaged with, with a term like chiclet, it just means fewer sales which means it's harder for female writers to pay their mortgage than it is for male writers. You know, it comes down to pounds, shillings and pence rather than simply a status thing. And I think anyone who you know, would say, oh, it's only a term should reconsider because, you know, that, that term actually has meaningful impacts on the lives of female authors. And the readers, actually. That's it, because if you feel what you're reading is a bit mortifying, it's a bit crappy rubbish, you feel a bit hunted and ashamed, you know, like you don't want to be reading it in public, which is codswallop, you know. But it's hard. It's easy for me because I'm 57. It is far, far harder if you're young. I mean, it's different for your generation, Rosie. I mean, I have a niece who's a bit younger than you and she just has a different sense of herself, in the world to the one I had. And um, I do think it's lovely the way younger women have become more confident in their role as women. Would you agree with that? I think that's probably...
0: I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it is a little bit... Maybe a bit younger than me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So as an author with your characters, did you ever go down a different path with them and think what if they did something else or were
2: someone else? Yeah, I mean, the thing is I don't plan... My novels, like the plot isn't laid out. I mean, I have a vague idea, but yeah, often things will be very different from the way that I had thought that maybe they would. I mean, as an author, you've got to stay open to the idea that things will develop a life of their own. Even in a small thing, like the bit I'm writing at the moment, it was meant to be something that ended Hopefully, it, not the whole book, but there's a scene that I've written, and and it actually mm. ended in a far more confrontational way. And that is, it's interesting. And I've decided to let it stay like that. And I wasn't that comfortable at the beginning, but yeah, definitely, definitely. The unexpected. But I mean, it's part of life, and I think it's it has to be part of fiction yes. because fiction mirrors life so much. And we are ending each
0: episode by asking guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. So we're
2: wondering what yours are. Oh my God. Okay. My biggest fail. I failed to have children and it was just so sad. And in many ways, there's still an absence. But my husband and I have managed to be very happy with each other. You know, and we do have lots of babies and tweenies and teens in our life. And, you know, they, they still give me so so much pleasure. But I still would have loved six children. And maybe if I'd had one, I would have realised that I was a complete lunatic and one was plenty, you know. But, <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose that was my fail. And I'm using the word fail almost uh, ironically because... Nobody fails at something like that. Like you get what you get. Now, my regret, I have so few, which was a lovely, lovely thing to think of. And some time ago, I don't know, maybe maybe about 12 years ago, a magazine editor asked me to fly to the south of France to interview Mrs. Bono in their south of France home about her, her fashion range. And so the idea was that I would get in to interview about the fashion range. But actually, it wasn't really about that. I was to find out all I could about their lives and mostly about her and Bono and how, you know. And I Mm. thought about it and I thought, I'm so uncomfortable with this. I don't want to go there for the wrong reason. So I I said no. And then I've often thought, ah, maybe I should have gone. So there's a Mm -hmm. sort of a regret, but not a huge regret, to be honest. And my win, I mean, my win was getting sober. Like without a doubt, like that was the pivot Mm -hmm. that my entire life changed on. As I said to you earlier, like when I went into rehab, I thought my life was over and it was literally about to start. So again, I feel so lucky. Thank you so much Perfect. for your time. I A love pleasure. You. I love you too. I hope to see you soon. I really hope to see you soon. Yes, again. yes, yes. Take care of yourselves. Enjoy you, this darling. lovely time together. And thank you so much. It no, was just lovely you. talking to you both. Oh, it's great to talk well, to you. Lots of love to himself. Oh, thank you. Thank you so, <laughs> so himself. much. <laughs> Angels, the pair of you.